palliation should be everywhere in veterinary medicine. Palliative care is everywhere, right? So we always want to do palliative care. Hospice has a component of palliative care. You can't have hospice without palliation, but you can have palliation without hospice. Welcome to Dog Cancer Answers, where we help you help your dog with cancer. Hello, friend. Today on Dog Cancer Answers, we have a very interesting conversation. We just finished up an interview with Dr. Mary Gardner of Lap of Love. She is a specialist in geriatric and palliative care, hospice care. And she has a lot to say about the real nuances that all of us are going to face at the end of life with our dogs and how sometimes the symptoms of old age might show up and look like the symptoms of cancer and vice versa, just kind of how to think about that last stage of life. I personally found it very stimulating, so I'm hoping that this conversation will serve you well in your life with your dog and hopefully take a little bit of the edge off of your fear about the end of life. Dr. Mary Gardner, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad to be here, thank you. So my first question for you, is how do we know that we have an old dog? Because I look at my 14 and a half year old Maltese and I see the puppy. Right. And it does change depending on the breed, right? Mm -hmm. So technically, there's some ranges of ages for senior dogs that are dependent on the size. So a Great Dane is senior at six, where a Maltese might not be senior until 10 or 11. But you know what? It's just a number, Molly. So, you know, are we senior citizens? Uh, you know, who's to say? And I don't know. Right, like, what's that? <laughs> I don't know. What is the number that humans become senior citizens? And that could vary because some people say it's 65. Some people say 60. The AARP at 47 sent me stuff. Like, they were ready to talk to me. And I'm like, hundred <gasps> percent. So my focus is not necessarily how old they are, but how they are. Mm -hmm. And so you and I could be maybe 70 years old, right? And we're still, we're technically seniors, mm -hmm. but we're not geriatric. We're not fragile. We don't have all these problems. And so the senior is really just a number. To me, it's geriatric and, and how fragile they are and all the aging problems that come with it. So a Maltese... You know, typically the smaller dogs, they do live longer. And that's a whole other topic, right, of why why the Great Dane does not live as long. And we wish they would. But, you know, you're, yes, definitely senior. Don't know if you're Maltese geriatric yet, though. Great. That's a really great distinction. So what is geriatric then? Right. So when I was learning about geriatrics, I actually went to a human geriatric conference. So it was for, like, geriatricians. And I'm like, what is a geriatrician? You know, we have pediatricians and geriatricians. And so like, what is that? What is that? In humans. So I went to one of their conferences and they, uh, it was just very interesting because I learned so much from them and we're not going to do the same thing in our world, but it was just kind of cool. So family doctor, when a human is of a certain age, but having multiple issues like slowed walking, memory, you know, issues, uh, weakness, sleep disturbances, things like that, they will send them to a geriatrician and they consider them, it's like a, it's called a fragility syndrome. And they'll send them to a geriatrician to work with. And the geriatricians deal with polypharmacy. So all the specialists and all the doctors are giving them meds, which happens to us too. Mm -hmm. They're dealing a lot with cognitive dysfunction. So Alzheimer's in humans, 
and caregiver burden. They help families manage this aging person. What can we do to the house to make sure they're safe? How can we help them at the store and get them what they need? And so I thought of that with our dogs and cats. And I'm like, okay, what makes a geriatric dog? Because you can have a 12-year-old lab that's wagging his tail and everything is great, but he's not doing well. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not, you know, he's cognitive dysfunction at night, panting and pacing. But three years earlier, he's a senior at nine and he's totally fine chasing bulls and running like crazy. So the concept of geriatric is really about fragility and adverse outcomes. So a stumble to an older dog is way harder on them than a stumble if they're six, right? So we want to make sure that they're kept safe. And a lot has to do with cognitive dysfunction and some other impairments that they start to have. Okay. So what would you call normal aging versus like signs of illness that we start to see? Great question. So a lot of people say that old age is not a disease. And I always say, well, disease means dis-ease. They're not doing well. Mm. And there's a lot of natural, quote, aging processes that make us not well. So for instance, here's an easy one. We're all getting wrinkles, right? So we all get wrinkles as we get older because the collagen isn't there as much. And it stresses us out when we see it in our 40s and 50s and maybe in our 60s, right? But is that really a problem that we have wrinkles? Well, guess what? When we're in our 80s and we don't have that oil production in our collagen, our skin becomes fragile, mm-hmm. right? And if you've ever seen an elderly person, it's, it's bruised and it's fragile and they can't, you know, bumps. So is that a disease, Molly, right? Okay. Is your skin being fragile a disease? So I think there are absolutely diseases, but just as we age and get older, like nuclear sclerosis, a, a problem with our eyes, that is a disease technically, but it's usually not going to cause complete blindness, but it can bring a lot of struggles. And so in the human world, they actually would like to make aging a disease because then there's better insurance programs behind it, more research. You can code for it. You can code for it. Exactly. You can't code for something that people say is not a disease. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you, when my grandma Gardner, when she, was, when she was in her 80s, she had a lot of struggles, but did not have a diagnosed disease. Right. Besides arthritis. Like that was about it. Yep. Which, you know, so many of our pets have. Well, that's Really interesting. Okay, so at what point, Dr. Gardner, do you feel that a dog has gone from being a senior who's doing well to geriatric? Like as a clinician, what are you looking at when dogs come in? Is it that fragility? Is it skin problems? Well, it's a fragility, and they may not have skin problems, right? So I think it's usually when we have three ailments And also we start to tax the caregiver. Mm -hmm. So the caregiver can't leave them for eight hours, right? They have to come home in four to let them out. They have to wake up at night. You know, they're starting to struggle. They have to entice them to eat more. So when you have that caregiver burden on them, that it becomes a serious issue. So it usually starts when there's about three things. Because, you know, dog that's losing his vision, we set the house up a little bit for them and it's not so bad. Now you add incontinence, Mm, uh uh-oh, and then you add cognitive dysfunction or mobility issues, and it's really hard. And, you know, I was talking to this woman yesterday about her dog, Louie, and Louie has a bad disease. He's got osteosarcoma, but she she can't leave for a trip that she needs to go on because, you know, he's got some mobility issues now, and if that that fractures, it's not good. And I said, well, he's geriatric. He has other problems, and he's got a bad disease. He's in hospice. So as a clinician... Usually all the ones that we see at end of life, they're geriatrics. They're, you know, they're up there. They're the weak and the wobbly and the crusty and the lumpy and the most beautiful ones of all. 
For sure. Yeah. Because they're so loved. Oh, yeah. And they've got like a whole history of story behind them. The sad thing that, Molly, that really upsets me is, you know, doing end of life, everybody thinks that we must be crazy and sad, right? And so going to somebody's home to euthanize their dog or cat that's old and has got problems, is, it doesn't make me sad. I mean, I'm sad for the family. Of course. But it doesn't break my heart, right? Right. What breaks my heart is that so many have not been to their doctor in the year before. And I did research and we, I looked at 817,000 families that euthanized their pets in the United States across the whole country. And 50% of pets had not been to their doctor the year before they died. And that is when they're really geriatric. In humans, it's usually to be a broad categorization, it's the last 10% of a lifespan. Mm -hmm. So if the average lifespan is, let's say, 12 years old, right, that's a year and a half, you know, year and a half. And it's so sad. And 44% have not been to their doctor a year and a half before. And it's not just about the blood work and x-rays. And, you know, it's, it's what's the best harness to give them? What's the best, you know, should they, do they need a halo because they can't see anymore? How do we protect them? How, what about enrichment to keep their minds going? What, you know what, they do smell because their skin isn't so good, like I was talking about, right? So then we've got some crusties and stinkies or dandruffy and oily, like it's in between. Mm -hmm. And we could help those families so much at that last stage, even if it's not about chasing cushions and chasing some bad stuff, just caring for these guys that, you know, I lovingly call them jalopies, right? Like they, they've got a lot going on. <laughs> oh, little doggy jalopies. Little doggy jalopies. And, yeah. and so that's what makes me sad is that so many have not, have not seeked care. And, and a lot of people ask me, well, why do you think that is? And I think it's a myriad of reasons. I think they're, you know, denial is a, is a wonderful place to be in sometimes, right? Like I don't even want to know. Mm -hmm. Finances are another. Listen, he's a 14-year-old lab that's got a lot of issues. What is Dr. Mary going to say, right? Like, she's just going to give me the list of issues and charge me $500 to do blood work and x-rays to find that issue. Like, right. so I, I see that. And they also sometimes think, well, how much time do I have left? And they're waiting. And they're waiting. And it's a waiting game because they think they're going to die in a month or two. And then they keep living because they don't. <laughs> so I, you know, I don't know for sure. These are just anecdotally when I hear families and they're talking to me, they're like, I know we haven't brought them in and this is why. Yeah. It's hard. Remind me of the title of your book. Your book is called? So it's never long enough. Never long enough. Because Molly, no matter how old they are, when your you know, little one is 18, it's still never long enough, mm -hmm. right? We want them like a turtle. 40 years would be great. A hundred percent. And it used to, it kind of drives me nuts when somebody will say a really good old age, like, you know, oh, he's a 16-year-old lab. And people will say, oh, that's really good. Isn't that really good? And, you know, what? when my grandmother died, nobody said, oh, that's really good for her, you know, for an Irish American, that's really good. Like, no, I wanted her more. So, right. I mean, that's the name of the book. And my cat book is coming out later, Nine Lives Are Never Enough. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> that's great. So, Jen, obviously, this is Dog Cancer Answers. So, this is always something that people who are coping with dog cancer, you know, they're constantly... I think almost every day, people are looking at their dog and saying, where are we? You know, there's a continuum, there's a spectrum, and I want to balance it. So what do you see when it comes to cancer? What's your best advice for someone whose dog has cancer? Oh, this is so interesting. And you're spot on, Molly, because it's a rainbow of choices that we have. And I always, I like to understand the goals, the goals that somebody has and the goals of care. You know, some people 
have so much guilt with cancer because if they if they can't afford certain treatment options or you know they themselves have gone through chemo so they're kind of anthropomorphizing what they went through and they they you know and and you know some people will say well it's just a dog why would you do chemo and why would you do this or that so and funny I had my my own dog Sam she had I thought she had degenerative myelopathy about two years ago she started doing some wonky stuff long story short she had spinal lymphoma. Hmm. So just very, you know, rare, Mm -hmm. but it was like a DM dog. So that was her symptoms was, you know, toe dragging, all weakness, whatever, incontinence. Everyone was, you know, they were like, okay, I went for chemo and radiation. I went for it because I'm like, you know what, if I can get some more time and I will manage her symptoms well, I could take her to chemo every week. I could take her to physical therapy three times a week. Thankfully, we were in COVID. We were shut down. I could actually take her and I wasn't traveling. So this was a beautiful time. You had the time. I had the time. But let me tell you, in normal circumstances, her dad, he wouldn't take her. No way. I love quality of life discussions and and quality of life scales and having everybody do them and, you know, and respecting what everybody's decisions are and what their thoughts are. Right. That seems like a good place to pause and take a break. And then when we come back with Dr. Mary Gardner, I want to talk about those tools that you use, your pet hospice journal and your gray muzzle app. And now a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. If your dog has cancer, you need to get a copy of the best-selling animal health book, The Dog Cancer Survival Guide. Because no matter what you've heard, there are always steps that you can take to help your dog fight and maybe even beat cancer. At nearly 500 pages, this comprehensive guide is your complete reference for practical, evidence-based strategies that can optimize the life quality and longevity of your dog. It's written by two of the most respected names in dog cancer, full-spectrum veterinarian Damian Dressler and veterinary oncologist Susan Ettinger. 
With the Dog Cancer Survival Guide, you'll learn everything that you need to know about conventional treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, including how to reduce their side effects. You'll also discover the most effective non-conventional options, including nutraceuticals and supplements and diet, as well as mind-body medicine. What I love most about this book, which I've used with my own dog, Kanga, when she was diagnosed with cancer, is how to analyze the options and develop a specific plan for your own dog based on your dog's type of cancer and your dog's age, your financial budget, as well as your personality. You can get the Dog Cancer Survival Guide wherever books are sold, but if you get it direct from the publisher, you will save 10% when you use the offer code, especially for listeners of this podcast. Just go to dogcancerbook.com, and when you check out, use the promo code PODCAST, and you will save 10%. The website again, dogcancerbook.com, and use the promo code PODCAST to save 10%. I want to let you know about an important newsletter. It's called Dog Cancer News. Now with a name like that, it is not for everyone. But if your dog has cancer, you will want to subscribe. That's because every issue features articles that will be helpful, such as low-carb dog cancer diet recipes, new clinical trials, financial resources to help pay for cancer care, information on supplements, and lots of other helpful info that your veterinarian may not know or have the time to share with you. Also, when you subscribe to Dog Cancer News, you will get a weekly update on the topics covered on this podcast, along with links and resources. So how much does Dog Cancer News cost? Well, today, you can subscribe for free. It's our gift. For a limited time, you can get a full year's subscription for free. No strings attached. Just go to this website to sign up for the newsletter now, dogcancernews.com. It takes less than 10 seconds to subscribe, and it is totally free. Do it now at dogcancernews.com. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back with Dr. Mary Gardner. And, you know, I said I wanted to talk about your apps, but before we do that, let's talk about mobility. You were talking a little bit about not being able to get up. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you would recommend people think about when their dog starts moving, like limping or not able to get up so well? Like if there are things that they can do or things to look for, signs to really take seriously and take to the vet? Yeah, I dedicated a whole chapter to that in a book because we see so much mobility issues in our older dogs. It's the number one, besides cancer as a disease, it's the number one ailment that we see in, in older dogs that we manage. And whatever the reason is, it could be a disc issue, um, muscle wasting, arthritis, neuropathy, or things like that. So whatever the issue is, we still have a mobility issue and you know whatever the, the cause of it is, rather. Okay. The other thing that I know a lot of people can understand limping and they can understand slow getting up and down. The one thing that surprises families is the toe dragging. They're like, oh, it's just getting slow. So he's dragging his toes or, you know, flipping of the feet. 
But the toe drag, uh, the scuffing of the toe, I hear it. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, that's what triggered me with Sam. I was like, I heard it on the walk. I heard a scuff. Kind of like, that's not good. They should not be scuffing. And we see that a lot with, um, you know, polyneuropathies and even some disc issues too. The, The messages aren't going correctly. So these are early signs. And the sooner we catch mobility issues and manage them, the better. What I don't like for people to do is, is just say, well, he's hurting, so let's not let him move. Mm-hmm. We got to move, right? Like, we got to keep moving. We got to keep our muscles strong. We could learn from this. We got to keep muscles strong. We got to keep lymph flowing. We've got to keep all of the juices cooking. And I want them walking. We do. We have to alter what we do for sure. You know, we're not going to be running around playing as much, but absolutely walking. I, I walk four miles every morning with my dog. So if you've got a dog with some ailment of mobility, break up their walks to three or four times a day, shorter walks, but absolutely do them. And they love it. They love walking, right? That's their jam. Smaller walks more often. Smaller walks more often. And I don't get paid by this harness company, but my favorite harness of all times is help them up harness. Help them up. Okay. Help them up, right? And so it's just got great support in the front and the back. And so that way you can help lift their hind end and they've got tons of accessories and this is my favorite. It's maybe $100 for a large dog, so it's not that bad. You can buy cheaper stuff, and it's, that's what it is. It's cheaper. Mm-hmm. But you've got to set your house up for success. And if there is a hardwood floor or a tile, that's not good, and they're going to find that spot. So you have to cover your floor in rugs and in bath mats and yoga mats, stuff like that. They need traction because when they have traction, they're going to use their muscles. They're going to be safe. And there's a ton of other products that I, that I talk about that, you know, the toe grips and, and what kind of booties are best because not every booty is the best for, you know, certain diseases and just making sure that, that they can move. But we have to address pain if they are in any pain too, because we don't want to force movement if they do have pain. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about pain. The things that people always want to know is, is my dog in pain? And oftentimes I'm looking at the description, I'm thinking, well, it seems to me like that's pain that you're describing. But how do we know? Right. And chronic pain is the harder one. Mm-hmm. The acute pain is, is easy to see, right? So if they, you know, broken a leg or a ligament or something like that, you know, they're limping and their leg is up and they're like crying and whining. That's so obvious, right? But right. the chronic pain, we kind of get used to seeing them do certain things we, so we don't notice it as much, right? And so we just, it's there, oh, they're just getting slow, Mm-hmm. It could be so minor, just like the sawhorse stance of their legs. They just look like they've got, you know, something going on where they're just sitting like a sawhorse. Of course, getting up a little slower, getting down a little slower, things like that. But that is signs of pain. But they also could just be panting more. That's a huge sign of pain. Mm-hmm. They could be, you know, pacing more. They could look anxious more. They could also show no signs. Just because a pet does not show outward signs of pain does not mean they don't have it, right? Like nobody would say right now, I have pain. And I absolutely do. I've got a really bad shoulder and it hurts so bad. Mm -hmm. But nobody knows because we manage it, right? Why would I complain also? Dogs and cats don't love to complain, right? Except certain breeds. Certain breeds maybe are a little bit more sensitive to stuff. The other thing, you know, a lot of people don't realize is something called allodynia, which means Things, sensations and things that should not normally hurt because a pet is so wound up in pain, they're already in a state of pain that these other things start to hurt. So a great example is the golden retriever with really bad arthritis or, you know, even osteosarc or something like that. He's got pain and nobody's noticing it, but he doesn't like to get pet anymore. Ah, And somewhere else, it could be his head, right? 
So allodynia lowers the threshold of where pain is. So things that normally shouldn't hurt, even like a vaccine, you give a little teeny weeny needle and they're like, and it normally doesn't hurt, but because they're already in pain, their threshold is down. I get migraines and, you know, the light hurts me, right? Somebody touching me hurts me. So, right. So even just signs of things that are starting to aggravate them, that probably shouldn't. Okay. Well, that's a really helpful thing. So when my dog Rue had pretty severe arthritis at the end, and she had it for the last couple of years of her life, and she started to get really aggressive with us. And she'd always been like the most cuddly, lovely, you know, kisses, kisses, kisses dog. And she just was getting so aggressive. And that was definitely a sign for us that she was in a lot of pain a lot of the time. Yes. And so it sounds like that's what you're talking about here. Could be. Yes, 100%. And so many people will say, well, it could be, right? They could be, you know, some people will say, well, they're just getting ornery in her old age, right? Well, no, it's probably something else. They just don't get curmudgeons, right? Like we, it's not like. <laughs> That's not actually a sign of aging to get ornery? No, like for us, yes, right? But not for them. Like they're they're just awesome. And it's either pain or anxiety. And let me tell you something, anxiety is a form of pain. Aha. Uh-huh. And so the definition of pain is, that is really important. Yeah, that's such a, so, so really pain is not just a sensory, you know, like a physical biological thing like arthritis. It is also an emotional and social component. Anxiety is, dare I say, more painful than pain. If any of your listeners have ever had been anxious over something, right, whatever it may be, like that is, oh, it can make you sick and you stress about it and you can't even think about anything, right? So yeah, separation anxiety when pets get older and they have separation anxiety, even dare I say sometimes going to the clinic, if that brings them more anxiety as they get older because they have cognitive dysfunction and things like that, we got to address this. So it's it's not about gorking a dog out on meds, you know, like it is about making sure that they're comfortable. And that's what palliative care is, is making sure they're as pain-free and anxiety-free as possible. So when a dog has cancer, for example, where do you start to offer, in your expert opinion, where should someone start thinking about palliative treatments as opposed to curative treatments? Where do we cross that line? Oh, Molly, this is good. Okay. So there's a difference though, because palliation should be everywhere in veterinary medicine palliative care is is everywhere, right? So we always want to do palliative care. Right. Hospice has a component of palliative care, right? So you can't have hospice without palliation, but you can have palliation without hospice. We should probably define palliation and palliative for our listeners just to make sure they know what we're talking about now that I think about it. Yeah, it really is very simple. It's it's keeping a pet comfortable, as pain-free as possible, whether that is a short period of time, so maybe after a surgery that we know they're going to recover from, and we want to give them medication to make sure that they can sleep at night, they can not have pain, that's palliative care. You're taking away, you're trying to keep away pain and anxiety. So it could happen for a short period of time, and it could also be for the rest of their life because they have to deal with something, right? So Okay. So if a dog has chemo or has a surgery, and then they're prescribed serenia, for example, as just one, right, to try to keep nausea at bay and keep them comfortable. And they're prescribed pain medications after a surgery to give routinely for a few days after the surgery. Those are palliative care steps because you don't need the pain medication in order to heal from the surgery. Right. Okay. But there's a lot of studies, though, that show when you are painful, you actually heal slower 
Uh-huh. Yeah. So, and that's in human medicine too. Right. And it drives me nuts when people don't give the meds. And let me tell you, nausea, oh, that's the worst. I don't want ever to be nauseous. I agree. Right? Like I'll take a broken toe over nausea any day. <laughs> Same. So I love serenity and I, and I prophylactically give it, right? Like just give it because you know they may have it because it's much easier to keep pain away than chase it away. Okay. Right? Like once you start having it, it is really hard. So some people say, well, he's having a good day, so I'm not going to give it. Please just, please just give it, right? Because he's not telling you. Okay. I think that's really important advice. I'm just going to highlight and repeat what you just said, okay. which is that sometimes we think, oh, I don't want to give too many drugs. I'm not going to give the anti-nausea or the pain medication today. But your advice is to give it because it's better to give it when he doesn't need it as much, but still needs it a little than to not give it at all. Right. And isn't there a cycle that can start like pain begets pain in the body? Like, Yep. That's like the wind up comment I made earlier. So pain begets pain and, and you also then have a harder time getting it down. So like sometimes we have to give multiple drugs. Once they're in such a state of pain, we have to give so much more to get them to lower that threshold so that way they feel a little bit better. And it is true when I start to feel, you know, sick and nauseous, then everything starts to escalate. And I know so many people are scared of giving some drugs, but, but if it was you, you'd probably take them. The dog or cat's just not complaining. And, and some people don't take drugs. They're like, no, I'm not going to take the Tylenol, even though I've got, you know, a bone sticking out of my leg and, and they need more <laughs> than a Tylenol, but they don't even want to take that. Right. And I'm like, oh, don't be tough. This isn't the time to be tough. Sometimes we may not be doing curative treatment and that will shorten their lifespan. They won't live as long. But what I want to make sure is that when they do live, they live well. Mm. I don't want to extend life if it's not well. And that's not the goal of hospice. That's not the goal of what I do. It is about even if I've got four days left, I want them to be good. Yeah. I think everybody wants that for their dog. I think they want them to be happy and healthy and vibrant and vital. Exactly. Right up until the day that they for some crazy reason, have to leave us. And why do they have to do that? <laughs> I know. I always say we just borrow them for a little bit. We got to give them back. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you have some tools that you recommend. The Pet Hospice Journal is one. Yes. And the Gray Muzzle app. Yeah. So about maybe back in 2013, I we have a number of quality of life scales available on our website, Lab 11. And you could just search Google quality of life scale, and you'll have tons. The Ohio State has one. Right. Dr. Villalobos has one. Anyway, I'm a bit of a nerd. So I was, um, I worked actually in software for 10 years before I became a vet. And so I, I've got this little techie background. Okay. So I built a little website called the Pet Hospice Journal. And, and it just helped. It's just a digital way to monitor your pet. We also built an app a few years ago. And that's just simply good day, bad day, neutral day. And tracking this, because everybody, Molly, will say, when he has more bad days than good, it's time, right? Well, guess what? What you do is, is they have three bad days in a row and then they have one good day and you forget all those three bad days because he had one good day, See, right? I'm so, so glad the bad days are over. Woo! We're <laughs> over that! And right. they're like, forget about yeah. it, right? So you've got to monitor what you're measuring. And so whether it's my app, whether I have a journal that I also made that's a companion to my book that's got symptom tracking, cognitive questions, mobility things, quality of life, bucket lists, all these tools that just can be so helpful. And it's not for everybody, but I think it is actually really helpful to write things down, diary, journal, and, and create goals of care and things like that. So 
I got a whole bunch of tools in my toolbox. What anybody wants, I got. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll put links to all of them in the show notes. Okay, perfect. Well, is there any last thing you want to impart to our listeners about if you could sort of wave a magic wand, what's the mindset that you would implant in their brains when it comes to dogs, hospice, end of life, geriatric care? Mm, Gosh, I know. My thing is, say I love you every day. Mm. That is the prescription I prescribe to every pet family, right? Like say, literally say it. Because we will, when the time comes, we will always wish we had one more time to say that. We'll always wish we had one more picture, one more video. Like, go nuts. Use up your phone. Like, go through all the memory you've got and say, I love you. Because if you are not present and they die on their own, you have not said it. And I think it is really important to verbalize that every single day. And a lot of people say, I do that all the time. Make time. 15 minutes with nothing else. You just sit there and lay with them and say how much. They meant just hold their paw and just say how much do you love them. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Mary Gardner. Oh, thank you. I hope this is helpful for everyone. Oh, I know it is. And the beauty of podcasts, right, is that they live on forever. So it'll be helping people for many, many years in the future. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Well, that was a wonderful conversation with Dr. Mary Gardner. Kate Baysdow, thanks for joining me to debrief and think it through and wrap it up a little bit because my mind is, my wheels are turning around hospice, geriatric, and uh, end of life. I feel like I learned a lot and I had like a, I don't know, like a, a huge insight about just where life ends and begins. It was very cosmic conversation for me inside my head. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I love that Dr. Gardner brought up that Grumpiness isn't a normal part of old age because as well as the potential that the dog is painful, also that can be a sign of cognitive dysfunction and canine cognitive dysfunction, which is kind of like doggy Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. is very much treatable in most cases. Mm -hmm. My senior dog that I just lost last December, when she was around 12, she started doing kind of the sundowners behaviors with the whining and pacing at night. And it's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And we tried medication for it. And within a week, not only had the pacing stopped, but she was brighter and more cheerful. And I hadn't realized how grumpy she had gotten until we fixed it. Mm. And it was like, wow, I've got my dog back. And she went on another almost five years. Wow much brighter and happier. And I imagine that if you hadn't fixed it, she would have gotten grumpy, like that pain cycle and that anxiety cycle. Like we know these things can spiral and they get worse as they get worse. So if you interrupt these things, then you can sometimes really reverse them, stop them or arrest them or stabilize them so that it doesn't get worse over time. sounds like that's what happened with Quizel. Yeah. And for sure... (laughs) If we had let it go, also, my husband and I weren't getting to sleep. <laughs> and right. That was taking its toll. Right. And the medication that she was put on is called selegiline, and it's not the cheapest, but, oh boy, was it worth every penny for both her quality of life and ours, mm-hmm. for all of us to get the sleep we needed and to be ourselves and be happy and enjoy our lives together. Which I'm sure is what Quiesel wanted. Oh, yeah. Quiesel didn't want to be grumpy. She didn't want to be pacing. She didn't want to be sundowning. She wanted to have 
her beautiful life. She wanted her comfy beds and her food delivered on time. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that really resonated with me from what Mary Gardner was saying was about just give the pain meds. Mm -hmm. And if your vet is concerned about nausea and has given you anti-nausea meds, just give them. And at the very end for Q, she had been on pain meds pretty regularly for a while due to arthritis issues. And she was having kind of ongoing issues with appetite the last six to eight months of her life and then started having a lot of problems with nausea. And those last two weeks of her life where I was, at first it was a, all right, we're going to try Serenia to resolve the nausea and see if we can fix this and bounce back. And then to when we realized that this was it, she got the Serenia every day for those last two weeks of her life. Cause it was like, you know what, even though she felt good and ate today, I don't want to stop it and have tomorrow be another pukey day. Right. And so she got that medication every day, whether she ate or not for those last two weeks. Cause I wanted those last two weeks to be as good as we could possibly have them be. Yeah, sometimes people really worry about how potent a pharmaceutical can be. And I often, in my mind, think that's true. And life is very potent. And the end of life is potent as well. Mm. And pain is potent. And pain is potent. Dr. Gardner mentioned that she gets migraines. I get migraines too. And I would do everything. I have given up all the foods. I gave up you know, any like little taste of anything delicious for years to prevent pain. So (laughs) pain is a potent foe and it's absolutely worth treating even when you just suspect it's there. Yeah, there's a lot of food for thought. We're going to put all of the links in the show notes, right, to all of Dr. Gardner's books and tools and the harness that she mentioned that sounds like is a really great tool for mobility. Yes. And of course, our support group. Kate, is there any last word of wisdom you have as a licensed vet tech and the daughter of a veterinarian about this subject that you want to drop in the podcast? Love your dog. And especially with these senior dogs, if something seems off, make that call and make that appointment with your vet to get it checked out. Because sometimes it's just a bad day and sometimes it's a sign of a problem that hopefully we can fix if we catch it early. Love it. Thanks again for joining us today, and I'll see you on the socials and in our Facebook group. Join us on dogcancersupport.com. We'll redirect you to our Facebook dog cancer support group. And dogcancernews.com is where you can sign up for our newsletter. We send it out three times a week with all sorts of things about dog cancer, but also lots of light and happy things because it is about love, right? It's about connecting with our dogs and giving them those glorious last days so we get them too. I'm Molly Jacobson, and from all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'm wishing you and your dog a warm aloha. Thank you for listening to Dog Cancer Answers. If you'd like to connect, please visit our website at dogcanceranswers.com or call our listener line at 808-868-3200. And here's a friendly reminder that you probably already know. This podcast is provided for informational and educational purposes only. It's not meant to take the place of the advice you receive from your dog's veterinarian. Only veterinarians who examine your dog can give you veterinary advice or diagnose your dog's medical condition. Your reliance on the information you hear on this podcast is solely at your own risk. 
If your dog has a specific health problem, contact your veterinarian. Also, please keep in mind that veterinary information can change rapidly. Therefore, some information may be out of date. Dog Cancer Answers is a presentation of Maui Media in association with Dog Podcast Network. Does the act of taking paper to pen and writing help to heal a broken heart after your dog dies? Sheila Cooperman says yes. She joins us on Dog Cancer Answers to tell her true tale about Tucker, her dog who died last year from lymphoma. Sheila shares how writing about him is helping her heal not only from his loss, but from other heartbreaks as well. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts and at dogcancer.com slash podcast.